Welcome to Christian Renewal Church Sunday Sermon. Thanks for tuning into our series, Kingdom Come, based out of our study on the Beatitudes in Matthew 5. For more information about this sermon and other resources, visit ChristianRenewalHHI.org. In the 1870s, Charles Spurgeon taught through the Beatitudes in a series, and um, Spurgeon said that to him, every Beatitude built off the, off the last one, that it was this... Um, kind of layers of concepts that build off of each other. And I think as we come this week, we'll see that there is that the ideas are definitely interconnected. So this morning, I want us to continue to lean into the idea of the kingdom, of the new kingdom. And I want us to consider again what the commentator Herschel Hobbes meant by calling the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount the constitution of the new kingdom. That this is the... Um, the culture, the nature of the new coming reign. Let's pray over the word here. Lord, we ask that you would speak this morning. We ask that you would breathe. We value nothing more than your presence in this house this morning. We want to hear your voice. We want to honor your word. Do what only you can do, Jesus. In your name we pray, somebody say, Bless God. Bless him. Bless him. Hallelujah. Jack Deere is a, an author, theologian, um, who is, is still around. He, he was a professor at Dallas Theological Seminary, DTS for short, which is one of the most prominent, um, biblical seminaries in the world, has been for quite some time. He, um, Jack Deere, w- focused on on Semitic languages, and so he ended up teaching Hebrew, but just loved it. He said in a strange way, just loved Hebrew. And in my my younger years, you all know I'm young. Um, when I was a little bit more young, uh, and I started to become acquainted with the gifts and the power of the Spirit, it was Jack Deere's books that really helped me. He wrote a book called Surprised by the Power of God and Surprised by the Voice of God. And in these books, he explains his journey of going from a professor as at if not the most prominent, one of the most prominent seminaries in the world that, that held to cessationism. So in, he was a professor of teaching Hebrew, knew Bible well, but didn't believe in the power of God or that the gifts of the Spirit was for today. Um, and then he explains his story of, of kind of seeing the gifts of the Spirit in action and then questioning, wait, did I just believe a doctrine without being able to support it scripturally. And so then he re-begin, he begins to examine the scriptures and study the scriptures. And so he gives this like incredible presentation of why we should expect God to still be moving and speaking in the earth today and why the doctrine of cessationism doesn't have biblical basis. And, and it was a big deal because Jack Deere is a leading professor at the leading seminary that believes cessationism. Um, he was fired um, from Dallas Theological Seminary for being associated with quote-unquote charismatic types. Um, and that charismatic type was John Wimber, mostly. Um, so John Wimber hires Jack Deere to come and work for the Vineyard Movement. Remember John Deere is the... Uh, John Wimber. John Deere does tractors. Um, Jack Deere's professor... John Wimber leads, leads vineyard. John Deere is the green and yellow. Um, so Jack Deere starts working for John Wimber, 
um, in the vineyard movement. He's teaching, he's preaching, he's just kind of skyrockets to be a big name in the charismatic Pentecostal movement, um, teaching all over the world. He wrote a really weird book this year, um, strange book that, um, is a, I guess an autobiography. He tells the story of his life, but it is like, it reads somewhat like Augustine's confessions in that it's shockingly honest. It is, it holds no bars. It literally carries the shock factor as this prominent theologian and speaker kind of like lays out the deep, dark places of his life. His dad committed suicide when he was something like eight or nine. Um, his left his uneducated mother. I think his mother had like a 10th grade education to raise four kids. Um, he comes to the Lord and he jumps into theology. Long story short, his own son ends up committing suicide. His wife becomes an alcoholic. Um, he brought wine into the home. His wife becomes an alcoholic. It's just the story feels like the man can't catch a break. And throughout the whole thing, he is just shockingly honest about his own sin and his own struggles. One of my friends who's a pastor said that when he read the book, it made him want to kill himself, that it was that, like, depressing. I enjoyed it, but I also enjoyed Jerry Springer as a kid, so I don't know if I'm the right person to to recommend it. I like the drama. I grew up in the drama age. But painful relationships with his parents, his father shooting himself. He um, He talks about his own bitterness and the way that he treated some of his friends and, and friends that were pastors. He had a falling out with John Wimber and, and, and in his relationship with John Wimber operated in some pride and bitterness and kind of have an arrogant spirit. He kind of holds no bars. He, he calls the bluff of some others in the book. And, and I wanted to read you um, a few quotes from one particular chapter where he's kind of reminiscing on his time teaching at Dallas Theological Seminary. Again, world leading seminary as this young bright hebrew scholar and he said this of um of of dts he says it's safe to say that not one faculty member at dallas would have ever denied that a historical jesus walked up a mountain two thousand years earlier to deliver the sermon about the blessed but when they stood on their own mounts some of them rewrote the beatitudes on the hearts of their students they traded blessed are the meek for blessed are the learned and blessed are the poor in spirit for blessed are the pure in doctrine. And then he quotes C.S. Lewis. And C.S. Lewis, remember, taught at Oxford, taught it, um, at Cambridge for a while. So Lewis wouldn't consider himself a theologian. He was, Lewis studied language more than anything. Um, and Lewis said this. He said, one is sometimes, in parentheses, he wrote, not often, glad not to be a great theologian. One might so easily mistake it for being a good Christian. And then, and then Jack Deere says of himself, he says, although I love the poetry of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, I remained oblivious to its truth. People who already feel righteous don't hunger and thirst for it. So he excelled in the Christian world as an author, teacher, conference speaker, while masking his own self-righteousness with his brilliance. He said at one point that he had never heard a message on humility. He had never heard anyone preach or teach on humility until he left the seminary and began to work for John Wimber. And John Wimber kind of started to critique him. Critique's probably not the right word, but started to coach him a little bit and to talk to him about what kindness was and what meekness was. And one of the highlights of Jack Deere's 
kind of reminiscing of his time with Wimber is he said that he had a debate with a cessationist scholar at a school that was cessationist. And so he's debating another scholar and he said that, that Wimber went with him and came to hear him. And as he's debating this scholar, he said that the scholar, in his words, left his jugular open. That his, he was presenting an idea that was completely illogical. And he said that everything in him wanted to just chew him up and spit him out. But he said in a moment, he considered that maybe he should honor this man in front of his students rather than cut him up and dice him up. And so he decided not to cut him up and that he, he, he just kind of responded and helped and, and tried to continue the conversation. And he said when he got down from the podium from the debate, he said, John Wimber said to him, that was incredible, Jack. He said, you you are kind. You learned to be kind. And he said that what was really interesting is that that cessationist scholar that he was debating continued to invite him to come and speak and teach at his own seminary. So he says, people who feel righteous don't hunger and thirst for it. So while the people of the kingdom of God, they long for righteousness, we hunger and thirst for it. That's what our passage is going to say today, that we hunger and thirst for, for righteousness. The kingdom of, the people in the kingdom of God are never self-righteous. They never consider themselves to have attained it. They're always hungering, thirsting, longing for righteousness, but they are never self-righteous. They never walk around with a pious, chest-puffed-out spirit that says, I'm there and you're not. That's not who the people in the kingdom of God. They love holiness. No, they deeply love holiness, but they're never satisfied with their own progress, not fully satisfied. They understand that they are still growing. And so Paul in Philippians chapter three writes this, reflecting on his own life. Not that this is Philippians three twelve through 14, and Paul's speaking about holiness. Not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect. And this is later in Paul's life. But I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, I forget what lies behind and I strain forward toward what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So Paul, considering his own life, says, I haven't made it. No, I'm not there yet. But I, what I do is I forget what lies behind. There's grace for yesterday and I strain on toward what's ahead. And so I hunger and thirst after righteousness, but no, I don't think I've actually made it yet. I'm still longing and desiring. And that's the posture of kingdom people. Love holiness deeply love holiness, never self-righteous. There's a nuance there that you've got to grab hold of. I don't think holt is a word, not like that. I'm working on grammar, that's the thing. So our passage today is Matthew 5, 6. Let me read it to you. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, a lot of us memorized, for they shall be filled. And I wanted to read to you First John 3, 2, which says this. Beloved, we are God's children now. Today we are God's children. We are God's children now. But what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Because we shall see him as he is. Beloved, today we are God's children But what I'm going to be is not yet manifested. I'm not there yet. What I'm working toward, it ain't ain't happened yet. But there's a day when he will appear. And when my eyes catch him, I will be like him. Then I will be, when I see him, I'll be all that God has intended for me to be. I'm God's children. I'm God's child today. But what I'm going to be hasn't happened yet. It's not appeared yet. Stuck somewhere in the middle. 
Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. So the first question we have to ask is, what is righteousness? What, it, righteousness is something that we throw around in Christian lingo, but I promise you that you haven't used that word in your everyday speech over the last 25 years. The word, um, the, the Greek word, diokinesia, it's kind of hard to pronounce. Um, it, it, all Greek words are hard to pronounce. It's, um, it's used heavily in Paul's epistles, specifically in Romans. Paul is fascinated with the idea of righteousness and who is righteous and not righteous. The word just means to be set right. It means what is right, what is just, to be put right with or in right relationship with. Um, sometimes the word, the New Testament word, is translated to mean justice. And the idea of righteousness and justice are heavily interrelated. Sometimes the Hebrew equivalent of the, of the Greek righteousness is even translated as honesty or equity. And so it, it carries this idea of integrity. And the integrity, the word integrity means wholeness, right? Like it comes from the idea of integer, it means wholeness. And so it, it presents this idea of being whole. Righteousness means to be set right, to, to be in right relationship. And the word for sin means to miss the mark or to m- miss the standard. So righteousness is this standard of God. Righteousness is the, the law of God. It's the, um, the, the culture that he intends, the, the, the setting that he intends. So Psalm 89.14 says this, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. So here we see that righteousness, it, it's the, it, it's what holds up God's throne. Righteousness fills the throne room of God. And then Peter makes an interesting comment in 2 Peter 3.13. He says this, But according to his promise, the promise of Jesus, we are waiting for the new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So righteousness fills the throne room. It's a characteristic in which God has established his own throne. Righteousness is a, um, it, it is a, it is a unique and absolute characteristic of God. It fills the throne room. And then Peter says, in the new heavens and the new earth, righteousness will dwell there. Righteousness will, will be what fills the new earth. And so when we talk about the fact that this earth is soon to pass away and God is coming, when Jesus sets his foot on the Mount of Olives, he will set all things right. When the new kingdom, the new earth is filled with the new kingdom, it will be filled with what, what, what Peter calls righteousness, with rightness. Walter Elwell, a scholar, says that righteousness is the fiber which holds society, religion, and family together. Righteousness enhances the welfare of the community. Now, there's an interesting thought that runs through the Old Testament that I want to throw at you just really quick. It's going to feel a little bit like a sidebar, um, but it's interesting. In Genesis chapter 18, verse 19, um, this is where where God is speaking to angels about Abraham as he's talking about um, the fact that he's going to Sodom and Gomorrah. And God says this of Abraham. 
I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. So we get introduced to this idea called the way of the Lord, which will fill the Old Testament and run into the new. The, that Abraham will walk in the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and by doing justice. So Isaiah 41 says that this prophecy about John the Baptist, that um, it, then the prophecy says, In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. And so John the Baptist says that he fulfills that prophecy. And how does he fulfill that prophecy? John the Baptist doesn't doesn't take out his hacksaw and start cutting out a road. No, he prepares the way of the Lord by calling people to repentance. He's calling them back to righteousness. He's calling them back to the to the nature of God's way, which is righteousness and justice. There's a thematic thing that's happening to the Old Testament. And so in John 14, 6, when Jesus says, I am the way, I am the way of the Lord. It's a part of righteousness and justice. They are a part of me and who I am. Righteousness finds its fulfillment in me, the person of Jesus. I am the way. I am it. I am the way which God wanted Abraham to learn to walk in. And so when Christians first hit the scene, before they were ever called Christians in Antioch, they called themselves the way. They were the way. And from Genesis, we learn that Genesis 18, that that way is righteousness and justice manifested. So God has a way. God has a standard. It's righteousness. His throne is established upon that standard. The new heavens and the new earth will be filled with that standard. And the people of God hunger and thirst for it. They hunger and thirst for righteousness. So it's an interesting phrase that he uses, that the kingdom people will hunger and thirst after righteousness. R.C. Sproul, a pastor theologian who died last year, told a story of going to see a life coach. Do you guys know how sometimes you know, um, he goes to this life coach and the life coach asks him his dreams and ambitions. And so he's sitting with a life coach and he gives the life coach a list of ambitions. He wants to write some more books. He wants to do some more things. And the life coach is going to help him to kind of organize his life. And he said it was a nice time, and when he got up to leave the life coach, he said that he was greatly grieved to realize that he said nothing about his own personal holiness. That he had said nothing about wanting tomorrow to wake up a little bit more like Jesus. He had said nothing about this hunger and thirsting for um, corporate righteousness, but also for personal righteousness. He had said nothing about that hunger and thirst, just about his ambition. And then he said this. He said that when an athlete loses their drive, he said what we say of them is they're not hungry anymore. And when an artist their work begins to kind of get sloppy. What we say is they're not really hungry. And he said, and it's the same for the Christian. Are you really hungry in that sense, thirsty for righteousness? John Lang, who um, was commenting on the, doing a word study essentially on the word for um, hunger and thirst, said that it's a figurative mode of indicating a desire so intense as to be painful. He says that this Greek, when he says they hunger and thirst for righteousness, that that desire is so intense that at times it can be painful. And so hunger and thirst, these are the most basic 
elements, uh, basic needs, desires of human existence, and desires that when not fulfilled, they produce physical pain. They literally make you physically uncomfortable. If you were to not eat for two weeks, you would feel very uncomfortable. And I have to wonder already, is Jesus in this, remember he just came out of his wilderness temptation, which is his wilderness fast. You know, is he a little skinny when he's speaking? Is he a little bit more bony than he than he was before? And, and these people, they're different than you and I. They don't have McDonald's. Praise God for McDonald's, but they ain't got it. And so when they can't just pop through when they're hungry and they don't have the financial well-being that we have, I think they knew what it was to be hungry in a way that we don't. He says, these these kingdom people, they hunger and they thirst. And when the desire is not fulfilled, they feel it, man. They, they feel it. And Spurgeon says that they pant after practical sanctification. Spurgeon says that they pant after their after wanting personal holiness that when they think of their day and they realize that they were sharp with somebody or they or they stole or they lied or they coveted that they they grieve and that they mourn remember and then they pant after real righteousness they long for it 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 causes them to be uncomfortable the fact that they have not fulfilled god's standard and they long desire for it and there's this crazy thing about my life that drives me nuts. And it's this, that my kids need food every day. And every time I do my budget, I have to budget in food. And, for, and, and it's, it's the law that I have to feed these little suckers. <laughs> and they, it's been funny there. Um, their Minnie and Papa moved next door, and we like we try to feed them. But it's been funny lately. They they come over to Papa's counter and they sit down and they declare, "We're hungry, Papa. Feed us." And they're not hungry. It's a daily need, a daily desire, a constant pursuit. Haley will be eating, asking, eating lunch, and asking, "What's for dinner?" It's that kind of need that kind of like i need right i i've got to live holy i love holiness i've got to live holy not self-righteous because you're fully aware of the fact that you fall short but it is there's a desire and look in the same way that the moment a child is born they need food they need sustenance in the same way the moment a believer is born into the kingdom they need holiness it is basic it is a basic necessity to the christian life that you would desire a righteous living now that doesn't mean that you're never going to struggle that you're never going to stumble that you're never going to mess up but we all do but it means that you you work back towards righteousness you grieve and mourn you learn to hunger to what Spurgeon calls panting after righteousness and then it's then then he says this those who hunger and thirst for it shall be filled shall be satisfied now, almost every scholar that I read this week pointed out that this word that he uses for shall be filled, they said this, um, like Vincent's word study says this, it's a very strong and graphic word originally applied to the feeding and fattening of animals in a stall. So every, almost every scholar pointed out that, that this idea that you would hunger and thirst for righteousness and you shall be filled is that God will fatten you up with holiness. That it's God's intention to feed you and continually feed you and make your butt a little more jiggly with holiness as you get fattened up for the last day. I'm winning that one, you know, I'm winning it. He fattens us with his perfect nature. 
There's a coming a day on the last day when you will be fat with holiness. On that last day, you will be fully filled. On that last day, you will, you will shed. When it says, when we see him, we'll be like him. It means that when you see him, you will shed your imperfect nature and you will be filled with God's perfect nature. You will be fattened with holiness. But in the meantime, God is feeding us day by day. He's, the psalmist said, he is leading us in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Day for day, he is leading us in paths of righteousness for his great name's sake. The promise applies neither exclusively to justification so that he doesn't just mean being declared righteous. And it doesn't mean just that you're being sanctified as you live. It's not just progressive sanctification, but it's the full range that the moment I said yes to Jesus, God is sucking me up into his kingdom of righteousness. I am being drafted into the way, into the way, which is a way of righteousness and justice. And so this is the lifestyle that you're called to embrace. This is now your lifestyle, hunger and thirst after righteousness. In one sense, Christianity begins with a big, it is finished. And in that it is finished, we rest. But in the, in it's finished, we still continue to exist. And so in our current existence, we are hungering and thirsting for the final finishing. When Jesus will step his foot on the Mount of Olives and set all things right. What a wonderful day it'll be. So in our current existing, we keep repenting. Remember Martin Luther in his 95 thesis says that repentance is daily for the Christian. We, how do we keep hunger and thirsting? We keep repenting. We keep renewing our minds. Romans chapter 12. We keep guarding our hearts. We keep setting up. You know, if, if you need to get some internet blocks in your home to be sure pornography is not a thing, you get your internet block. If you need to shut some channels off on cable, go on and shut off some channels on cable. If you need to guard what you're listening to, you guard your heart. We're guarding ourselves because we're hunger. We hunger and thirst for the righteousness that fills God's throne room. We also I want to say this, those who hunger and thirst, allow people to speak honestly with them. You get yourself some friends who love you enough to be honest with you from time to time. I've got to stay humble enough to allow people to speak into my heart. And we embrace the process of sanctification. So how do we exist? We exist continually preaching this message of grace. We exist loving people, proclaiming the way of the Lord. There's grace for yesterday and there's strength for tomorrow. That's really what the gospel says. There's grace for your sin tomorrow. There's grace yesterday. There's grace tomorrow too. But you come to Jesus, get grace for your past, and he's going to give you strength and the power of the Holy Spirit to live for tomorrow. How do we live? We keep preaching grace. We keep preaching holiness. We keep loving. I dreamed this week. I had a dream this week that... um, I was sitting on my front porch of the house that I grew up in. I told you before that we just had dirt. We didn't have grass. And in the dream, the yard was filled with, um, what I assumed were weeds. When, 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 when all you have is a dirt front yard and you come outside and it needs to be mowed, that means you got weeds. Okay. You got weeds. And so in the dream, I'm, I'm younger and I'm sitting with my mom and I say, uh, mom, the weeds are high. I'll get the lawnmower and take care of it. And so in the dream, which I would have never said, by the way, um, Maybe being a grown-up, I would say. Um, so in the dream, I go out and I get the lawnmower and I crank it up and I start to push the weeds and my neighbor comes running out and says, what are you doing? And I said, well, the yard's full of weeds. I'm going to cut the yard for my mom. 
And the neighbor said, no, those aren't weeds. He said, this, this is produce. And he, and he pulled up what looked like a weed to me. And it was like cartoon style carrot, you know, you see that. And you know how dreams are. So like I'm pulling up weeds and I pull up a weed and it's a pineapple. You know, like pineapples don't grow out of the ground like that. But you know how dreams are. And I'm just pulling up and I start pulling up and there's all this produce that's popping up everywhere. And I said to my mom in the dream, I said, I forgot I planted all this. And she said, I forgot too. And I woke up and I remembered Galatians chapter 6 when God says, don't grow weary in doing good. For in due season you'll reap a harvest. And what I felt like God was speaking to us as a people in the dream, there were... The pat that text was the heart of it. Don't give up on doing good. But in the dream, there were people from the church. You know how dreams are coming in and out. Um, and what I felt like God was speaking was that that I don't think one of you walk around with a little yellow legal pad in your back pocket, and every time you love somebody, you hold the door, or you share Jesus, that you're like tabbing it. I'm not walking around and encouraging people. You love Jesus, and then making a note. I sowed a seed there. I'm keeping track of all my little good works. I don't think one of you are walking around with a legal pad trying to remember, memorize all of the seeds that you've sown, but that doesn't mean you haven't sown seeds. And God is faithful. The, the scripture says that we sow the seed and God's faithful to cause that thing to grow. And I think what God was saying is that you just, you just continue to sow. Just keep doing, you just keep showing up to church. You keep loving people. You keep inviting people to church. You get an opportunity to be kind to somebody, be kind to people. And I understand that you're not keeping track of every little seed that you're sown, but I am keeping track of every little seed that you've sown and I am watching over it and I'm faithful to cause those things to to bear fruit. And sometimes you look out in your life and you say it's filled with weeds and God says, no, it's filled with fruit. You just can't see the way that I can see. And I felt like God was speaking that to us, that we just got to keep sowing, keep, keep, keep keeping on. How do we keep hungering and thirsting for this new kingdom? You just keep sowing, man. You keep being kind. You keep being gracious. You keep the name of Jesus on your lips. Wake up tomorrow, put his name on your lips again. You just keep moving. Keep your feet moving. And, and we will never know.